0: Hello. Welcome to the Talking Writing Podcast. I'm John Vogel, TW's art director. This is where members of our team interview artists of all mediums about their personal and creative lives and the intersections between the two. In this inaugural episode, TW founder and publisher Martha Nichols talks with Sarah Fay, author of Pathological, The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses. Let's begin. Was Sarah Fay, the author of the book Pathological. The True Story of Six Misdiagnoses, which was published in the spring of 2022 by HarperCollins. Sarah is joining me via Zoom from Chicago, where she's currently on faculty in the English department at Northwestern University. Her writing appears in many publications, including the New York Times, The Atlantic, Time Magazine, The New Republic, Longreads, The Rumpus, and more. She's the founder of Pathological, the movement, a public awareness campaign devoted to empowering people to make more informed decisions about their mental health. So welcome, Sarah. I'm delighted to be talking with you about your new book. Um, And I do think of this as more of a discussion than a a set interview. But the funny thing is, is when I started thinking about, oh, I get to talk to Sarah about Mm -hmm. the book... I realize I have a lot of questions, mm. and it's it's there's rich material there. And for um, uh, certainly, uh, I know for talking writing readers, um, since we have emphasized various kinds of personal essays and writing about mental illness and mental health, I think it has particular resonance. So, well, I love talking with you anytime. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so. Um, as you know, I would call Pathological an excellent example of first-person journalism, um, and we may discuss the nuances of that as we go along. But first, I'd like to hear your own description. How would you describe your book?
1: What's it about? I, I did, well, first of all, what it's about, it's about, it's a cautionary tale of over-identifying with a mental health diagnosis or six mental health diagnoses in my case. Um, And so it's really three different strands. And one strand is my personal story of having been diagnosed with six different mental illnesses, starting when I was in eighth grade up through my late forties. And then the other strand is really uh, journalistic, as you said, investigation into mental health diagnoses. I here, I'd been in the mental health system for 30 years. I'd received six different diagnoses And I didn't even know where they came from. I didn't even know what they were. I'd vaguely heard of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is where all our mental health diagnoses come from. But like vaguely, if anyone's eyes just glazed over at that title, don't worry, mine used to too. It's like something about it is sort of mind numbing. Um, And then this third strand, which I'm very lucky that no editor or publisher made me take out, although Two suggested that I do, and I didn't end up going. An age two agents suggested I take it out, and one editor that was interested in the book did want it taken out. But the agent I went with loved this strand of punctuation, and I go into the history of it. And the reason why I did that was because my first diagnosis came when I was so young, and I think we're seeing this in the mental health crisis that we're seeing in teens. The dangers there is that you're so young and your identity isn't formed yet. And what I did was I became the diagnosis. I didn't have an adult sensibility to sort of regulate how much I made myself into the diagnosis or made the diagnosis part of me. And around that same time, I almost failed my 10th grade term paper. (laughs) So I worshipped my English teacher. Um, He was just an amazing, brilliant man. And he pulled me into his office. All the red marks are on the paper. And along with everything else I'd done wrong, he looked at me and he said, and you use commas like you're decorating a Christmas tree. And I did. I was just like, I didn't know any of the rules, nothing. So these two things really came into my life at the same time, which were diagnoses, and punctuation. And I was so embarrassed because I idolized him so much that I then took it upon myself to really learn everything I could about punctuation over the years. Meanwhile, I was getting one diagnosis after another and still not feeling better. So the two seem to go together. The other part of it is that we really use punctuation and you know, we're all writers here or readers and mm-hmm. punctuation is a way to order our thoughts. It's a way to apply meaning. And so are diagnoses. I mean, with all their flaws, which I go into in depth with the book, is they are used for a purpose. They're they're meant to organize and categorize what might be dysfunctional thoughts, behaviors, and emotions.
0: Wow. That was a terrific response. And you anticipated some of the questions I had. I was surprised when the punctuation stuff first came up and then delighted because I, and in fact, I thought you really conveyed a lot of your personality, your your first person voice, you know the 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 voice that um of your contemporary writer self looking back on all this experience, you know, which is part of the whole it's it's the conundrum of doing any kind of personal writing, but I think it's, especially when you're, as you're saying, you're trying to figure out your identity and then all of a sudden you're grappling with these diagnoses that other people put onto you. The The flip side for me um, in sort of defining what it's about, you know, sort of describing or explaining what it's about is, you know, the, the feeling of writing such a personal book mm-hmm. because there's a lot in pathological about how much feelings and, Complex reactions to life often get slapped with a diagnosis. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, what did it feel like to write this book? That's a big question, obviously, but just maybe say a little bit about that.
1: I don't think I realized what it was like until I heard people respond to it. So, like the New York Times gave a great review and they called it a fiery manifesto of a memoir. (laughs) And I thought, good. I am kind of (laughs) angry. Like I am a little (laughs) angry in the book. And and so it's funny because I'm writing the sequel right now, which is how I healed from mental illness. And we're told that we can't. And I don't accept that. Mm -hmm. And I believe I've fully cured myself, not just remission, not just recovery. And, um, which doesn't mean I don't have depressions and it doesn't mean I don't have any, I had a panic attack yesterday, just to let you know. So we're still in the human mess of it. I wrote it very quickly. I wrote it in about five mm-hmm. months. Um, the research took much longer and that was right. a couple of years. Um, Maybe three years actually, but the narrative came out very fast. And part of it was that I had never told anyone that I had any diagnosis. Um, I think I told a couple of people about ADHD because it was more accepted. I was getting my PhD Mm -hmm. at the time and like in a college town who didn't have ADHD. Everybody says they have ADHD. (laughs) Exactly. So that was kind of academia. uh, Yeah. (laughs) And so, but you know, I so when I decided to kind of release that information, I think it came out in a rush. So I think I felt a lot of urgency and I was angry because once I found out how flawed mental health diagnoses are, after I had believed they were as solid as a cancer diagnosis or a a diabetes diagnosis that could be proven. And then to find out they couldn't, I really felt like someone had robbed me of 30 years of my life. Um, And and that's not really fair to say. I was a willing participant in all of it, obviously. Um, But yeah, I think I was I was angry, and I'm not anymore. <laughs> is anyone wondering? But well,
0: it's interesting that that's the the main feeling that kind of um comes up for you, and that of course the times talked about it being fiery, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, to me, I actually just think you're making a strong argument based on mm. evidence. I have a different. Yeah. I, I mean, why wouldn't you be angry? But I, I, think, I think that I think that it's the overall feel, there is a lot of urgency in the narrative. Um, There's a lot of pain there. There's some harrowing things there. Um, I I don't think of it as all
1: anger, though. I think actually, now that we're talking, urgency and passion. I was so passionate about the research, especially. I'm I'm a research dork I think we yeah. probably both I'm are. So, but, yeah. <laughs> so, but I, I loved it and I was so passionate about it and finding out the truth and getting that information to people to try to correct some of the misinformation that's on the internet.
0: Yeah, I I actually think passion is a much yeah. it's a much stronger term, you know, or in the sense that it's fine to be angry, but I think passion is where you it's it's you you put your thoughts out there. Yeah. You make connections with other people. Yes. you know, you perhaps do start a public awareness campaign and, and, yeah. and move towards healing. You know, there, there's, there's passion can encompass both anger, but a lot of other feelings too. I think maybe, anyway, I, I have, a, I have a couple of thoughts about that. I should probably do full disclosure to talk about my own experiences um, uh, with my, having a mother who went through a enormous number of different diagnoses (laughs) as I was growing up and as well as my attempt to um, become a clinical psychologist at one point and and working in an affective disorders clinic so I I have a lot of familiarity with the DSM going especially going back into the 1980s when it was really revving up into being becoming the bible right so um, uh, I'll I'll Come back to that in a moment. But one, one question I had, and, I, and just sort of an observation I had too, is, okay, perhaps you can say right now, what were the six misdiagnoses? You do list them in your prologue, yeah. but I'd just like to hear you just say oh. them
1: yeah so anorexia um then in my 20s uh generalized anxiety disorder major depressive disorder in my 30s it was obsessive compulsive disorder and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder ADHD mm-hmm. Um, and then bipolar disorder was the sixth diagnosis I ended up with. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, I chose the word misdiagnosis very intentionally in that it's got a different meaning than I thought it did. It's more nuanced. So it is an incorrect diagnosis is how we think about it, but it's also an inadequate diagnosis and an inaccurate diagnosis. And I think that's so fascinating because, because we don't have any biological markers for any mental health diagnosis, with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal Mm -hmm. disorders, that we don't, you know, it really is an approximation and they really are labels to allow you to get care. I mean, that's really what they are. Um, They're kind of like, you know, a, a marker in order for you to get care.
0: So, of course, the first thing you want to know, we've got a subtitle like that. Okay, so what are the six, you know, if you think that way? Right. And you list them in your prologue. But as I was going through the book, I kept forgetting what the diagnoses were. And I kept going back to see where we are. And I was wondering how much of that was intentional on your part, because what happens is once you get into both the narrative and also the research sections you bring in, provide a different kind of nuance to what your experience is. it becomes so clear that it's not just one diagnosis or that it's kind of arbitrary. So I, was that intentional or, or not? That's.
1: I think it was intentionally unintentional or something like unintentionally (laughs) intentional only in that. I I realized as you were talking that because we're writing a narrative, I'm discovering the diagnoses. I don't know what they are either. So I think we get into that sensibility of, you know, the sort of speaker protagonist, not knowing what's wrong with her. And so that is the sensation I wanted um, readers to have, certainly.
0: Yeah. And I think that's fair. And one thing, but one thing I think is interesting about your book, and the reason I would call it a first person journalism is that I'm always aware that your contemporary eye is there, Mm. Even in those sections where you're conveying what it felt like to be at different ages or to, you know, different kinds of uh, when you'd been diagnosed with different things, um, I was always aware of that. And it's partly because of the way you braid things. You know, you've got the, the research section, there's the punctuation, there's obviously there's, there's this larger eye out there that's making sense of everything. So I think that's part of it. But it's part of what I like about first person journalism ver- versus just a very narrative chronological memoir where there's not enough sense of the contemporary eye that knows everything.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's such a cool way of putting it.
0: So how would you define your condition now? Now you mentioned, you know, when you were first describing the book, you mentioned that you are still taking medications, you know, Mm -hmm. you had a panic attack, you, um, but how, (laughs) what, what, how, you know, but you're not, but you've eschewed all these misdiagnoses. So how do you,
1: how do you talk about it now? So, um, as you know. Where the book, I kind of talk about it in two different ways, because where pathological was, that was sort of my one understanding. And now that I'm writing the new book, I have a a bit of a different understanding. But where pathological leaves off is I ended up seeing a new psychiatrist, I was in crisis, I was suicidal at the time, and I hadn't been able to live independently for five years, I lived with my mother And I went to see a new psychiatrist and we did the 30 minute consultation. And at the end, I waited for him to either proclaim a new diagnosis, which is what had happened to me many times, or reify the bipolar diagnosis. And he looked at me and he said, I don't know what you have. And my whole world shifted and I thought, Mm -hmm. no one knows what I have. And then I started writing the book and I started investigating what mental health diagnoses really are. I wanted to know everything about them. And so the more I learned, the more, you know, not only disillusioned with them, I became, but also I saw how inadequate they were in terms of getting me the relief that I wanted. We tend to think, and this is just because this is how physical medicine tends to work is you go to a doctor, you get a diagnosis. They know what the treatment is. You have a prognosis and you get better or, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, one or the other, right? But with mental health diagnoses, we don't know the cause. We don't know the symptoms necessarily. We don't know the best treatment and we don't know the prognosis. And that's what a disease is, is those four things. So once I learned that, I stopped looking for the diagnosis to hold the answers to the cure for me or what was going to make me feel better. And what I found was actually when I didn't know, so I never asked the, the, my psychiatrist, who's still my psychiatrist, what diagnosis he decided I was. He has since changed it twice. I still don't know what it is. So I have a diagnosis. It's on my medical records. I could call him right now and find out what it is, but I've, I don't want to know because what happened to me uh, over the years was every thought, emotion, behavior became related to my diagnosis. So I didn't really process emotions. I didn't know how to live with my thoughts. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to function in my life without it being some sort of manifestation or proof of bipolar disorder or major depression or whatever it was. So not having a diagnosis now, I'm really forced to have a panic attack and it's not something to rush to my psychiatrist and change my meds about. I have to kind of like, let it be a part of my life. Um, so now the sort of second part of this and what's in the new book is that for a couple of years, I, I was, would talk to my family who I'm very close to. And I would say, I remember i go to lunch with my dad every week and I was saying to him, I, you know, I think I'm well, like, I don't think I'm just in recovery or like a little bit better. I think I'm like good. And he said, I know, I think you are too. I mean, I live (laughs) in a different brain now. Like I can't even really, I'm trying to explain it in the book, but I have a totally different mind. Um, and it's just a world away from where I was. And I just can't describe it in any other way, except that I've, I've cured myself and, and it's been a lot of work and there are a lot of steps and I'm outlining them very specifically in my book, not that this is the only way, but it's a way and maybe some of the tools that I've developed might help people, Um So, yeah. So now I see myself as, yes, I I'm also on medication and I always will be. And I don't think that that means I'm any less cured or well, I, my body is dependent on them. I mean, we, we know that that happens with psychotropic medications. And so I have tried withdrawal and I've had such severe symptoms that I will never try again. Um, It's just not worth it to me. And so, you know, that's just part of my, life. Now I take a vitamin every morning and I take psychotropic drugs every morning too. And that's just what I do. I mean, I don't really see it. There's a lot of pill shaming, but I don't think that that's helpful for anybody.
0: No. And I, I, well, and that's, you know, that's the interesting thing about I think your take, your and the nuance and your take on the, everything here is that, you know, that you know, as with so many issues that get discussed in public, you know, you have these binaries. There's biological psychiatry on one side, and then you have all the organization like, get off drugs, you know, on the other, when in fact, the the reality is this messy bunch of stuff in between. And it depends on somebody's particular physiology and who they are and their economic circumstance. You know, there's so many things that affect mental health. At different points in your book, I thought of uh, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search Mm -hmm. for Meaning, which Mm -hmm. I happened to reread again. Uh, uh, recently because of another project I'm working on. Um, but he frames his own experience of surviving Nazi concentration camps. Uh, he sort of frames it as his ability and that of other survivors who made it out and, and managed to to heal in some sense to to their ability to make meaning of suffering. Mm-hmm. And so it's all about making meaning. And so you're talking about your brain is different, your mind is different, but the mind is one of these things that, that it's, there's the brain <laughs> and then there's the mind, yes, and yes. the mind, you know, however you want to frame what the mind is. It's, it's not just, you know, I don't think it's just, you know, um, neurochemical processes necessarily, you know, or, or that we, can, when we think and, And reframe things for ourselves, we can begin to change and heal what's going on in the brain, right? So we don't know any of that. But I think, um, I I really wonder what you think about uh, in writing this book, did you find a way to kind of rest meaning out of this whole series of complicated events in your life? I mean, it seemed like that to me.
1: Well, first of all, being in the same sentence as Viktor Frankl is like high phrase in that book. <laughs> so first of all, I'm just flooded with like arrogance all of a No, I'm just kidding. But, um, no, but that's such a like, great, great, you know, like cool person to be in, in uh, like company with. But um, yeah, so I think I did uh, it. I have a lot more meaning now and writing this next book. Um, I'm definitely, I think giving the reader more of that and having more of that for myself. When I wrote pathological, one thing I didn't want to do is the classic sort of mental illness memoir elixir at the end. like either you find right. God or you have a psychiatrist mm-hmm. who saves you or whatever it is. and definitely I, I think it's so murky and so that there isn't an elixir and there isn't an answer or a key. I feel like I'm finding them more now. Um, and one of the sort of meanings that I come out of it with is, pathological, the movement, which now is really about getting, trying to clarify four basic facts for people to correct the misinformation on the internet, which is that a diagnosis is really just a tool and not necessarily a whole identity. It's not, what it's meant to be. Um, and that psychiatrists are really the ones with expertise to diagnose. I was five of my six diagnoses came from general practitioners. Mm -hmm. So that was, and they really aren't trained and they're doing most, uh, well, the majority of the diagnosing right now, and they're doing, they prescribe 80% of antidepressants, 50% of antipsychotics to children. Um, and so you're talking about people who are not trained to do that and they're the ones doing it. So really just to kind of alert people to that and maybe get a second opinion, or if you can see a psychiatrist, I know that's hard. And then the third one is that getting a diagnosis doesn't mean you have a chemical imbalance and that um, diagnoses have not been proven to be chronic um, with the exception of dementia and rare chromosomal mm-hmm. disorders. So those that's really my purpose now. and And I feel like that is why I went through that, um, was to be here to try to assist other people now who are going through it, especially young people who are in the same or similar position that I was in. Um, not that I lived through a pandemic in the way they did. I mean, it's just like a singular experience, but getting a diagnosis young and identifying with it. So I think that's the meaning I've, I've got from it now. And it's such an amazing purpose. Um, one thing that that's people talk about. And Thomas Insull, who was former head of the National Institute for Mental Health, he has a new book called Healing. That's really wonderful. Mm -hmm. And in it, he talks about that the way to recover from mental illness um, is through the three P's, like the letter P, and one is place, two is people, and the other is purpose. And I had all three, and that's why I healed.
0: Framing some of um, of how we experience life because that's one thing about mental illness slash mental health is that it's this huge frame for how you view life and move forward. Right. So,
1: yeah. I mean, the one thing, you know, thinking about how my brain is so different, the chaos that used to be just constant, it it may have gone to the background sometimes, but it was always there that kind of hum and and drone and, you know, of just chaos is gone. And that is amazing to me. I mean, I never thought I would have that in my whole life. And part of the reason why I didn't think I'd have it is some, no one told me I could. <laughs> so what I want people to know is that it is possible. And I want to be that yeah. example for people.
0: Yeah, I'm with you there. And mm. one thing I wanted to ask you about stood out for me in your epilogue is you noted one of these sort of sort of factual things that trust for psychiatrists has gone up yeah. in, in the past two decades as measured by surveys. And I say, why do you think people trust psychiatrists?
1: I, it's such a good question. I don't know that I have the answer. I think before when I wrote that, I thought of it in a very I don't want to say snide, but I thought, oh, the irony of this. But now that I'm kind of looking at what the real dangers that everyday people are facing and that GPs and getting diagnoses from people who really aren't qualified to do that, I, would, I can understand why people trust psychiatrists more because maybe they've been to a GP mm-hmm. who's after 15 minutes on an annual visit, which is where mine came from someone tells you you have major depressive disorder or you have obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever it might be. I mean, at least when you're with a psychiatrist, one, you're not even in a doctor's office and you aren't faced with someone who in a white coat with a stethoscope that should be absolutely solid. And what, I mean, they, they aren't, and they, that's a high expectation, but someone should be giving you the truth. And then mental health diagnoses often aren't satisfying. It just highlights
0: you know, the kind of, um, lack of knowledge we have about certain things and, and, and people do assume that psychiatrists know perhaps more than they do. And that became, you know, when I had, you know, in the past when I've dealt with, uh, um, uh, anxiety disorders, I've had panic attacks too and things. And, and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just made it a kind of a, checklist when I'd go interview a psychiatrist if they told me they thought they knew what I had after talking to me for 20 minutes (laughs) I was like okay I'm not gonna come back
1: here (laughs) so smart I wish I'd had you to well no that's
0: but that was after working for a year (laughs) in a clinic yeah Okay, so here's another question. It's getting—it's a little bit more of a writing question. So, it's hard to describe feeling depressed or anxious when you're in the middle of it. In fact, when you're depressed and anxious, especially depressed, there, I mean, my experience of that—you don't really want to be doing any writing. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, how did you approach describing these past episodes retrospectively? I mean, did you refer to journals or you said, you talked about the narrative came that there was an urgency to it. So maybe you could say. Yeah.
1: I kind of say this as a joke, but it's also true that I don't have a great memory in the sense of, I have a very good memory, but it's selective. I don't have a lot of memories. (laughs) So (laughs) I didn't have to, like many memoirs have to select what they're going to write about. And they have all these things to choose from. I just The the scenes I remembered, I remembered so vividly and so crisply, and they were the ones I needed to write. They kind of just formed the narrative themselves. I didn't have to dig around. Um, But in terms of that, it was really challenging to write that. And it was interesting. One thing I really tried to do was that sort of writing device of having the environment explain how I was feeling, meaning my perception of the environment. Mm -hmm. So there's a scene where I'm in with Dr. M, who's kind of the villain psychiatrist, not all psychiatrists are villains, but he was. (laughs) Um, But anyway, like the way his office smells and the things, you know, he Drinks a LaCroix every um, session that we have, and how the smell of that grapefruit LaCroix first reaches me as relief and this kind of like eagerness to be well. And then it nauseates me by the end of the time we're working together. So, again, trying to position emotion in the environment and in this, you know, in the setting, really. And that was um, fun to write, actually. I mean, you know, even though it was sort of stress, distressing situations. That's a cool way to get at it. Because how many times can you say I had a pit in my stomach? I'm sure I say it a lot in the book, but.
0: (laughs) No, I think actually there's, there's, there's good, healthy restraint in not too much of, you know, everything went black. This happened, that happened, you know, my mind was a whirl, you know, no, no, it's, I, I actually noted your use of details too, because of course, to me, that is what good writing is based on. And I remember that LaCroix, whatever it is, the, the yeah. tonic water thing that he had there. There was another place where it was, I think it might have been one of your turning point, points. I don't remember exactly, but you talked about there was a half nibbled square of chocolate on the. Just yeah. details like that um, evoke so much without a lot of explaining or abstract verbiage about something that is hard to describe. So I actually did think that that the scenes with the psychiatrists were were well evoked. Um, and and you had a good job, you know, even even just describing the different places you lived and what they were and how your perception of them changed. It just it just reinforces my my own notion that details are really, really what tell stories in a lot of ways. Yeah. Especially personal nonfiction, yeah. I think. So I uh, kind of brings us. Back around to first person journalism and why including a personal perspective that acknowledges the writer's uncertainty remains so provocative in the traditional journalism world, although there are increasing numbers of things that are written now from a first person point of view. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you merge your own experience with fact checking and a quest? <laughs> To get at the underlying truth. I I mean, I think even your, if I'm recalling this right, your epilogue of your last chapter ended with the word truth, like knowing the truth or something like that, right? It ended that way,
1: right? Yeah. Someone could take me to task for that because how do we know the truth about any of these? But I think the, Mm. um, well, I wanted, I have over 500 citations. So I wanted people to be, to know from peer reviewed journals and academic sources, primarily, I wanted people to know where I was getting my information and not just be throwing it out there. Um, Mm -hmm. I did use a fact checker, a really great one, um, just to make sure. And she found all kinds of things so far. And I even had um, Alan Horowitz, who's a really a DSM scholar. He's a sociologist, but um, writes, he wrote the loss of sadness and a lot of other great Mm -hmm. books and a a short history of the DSM. Um, But he read it and I was, I was like waiting for him to find errors and he didn't find any. So I was like, you know, that kind of felt like uh, one thing that's funny is someone on Goodreads, one of the readers, I'm not going to read any more reviews on Goodreads, by the way. But, um, <laughs> so it's just like, it's a rabbit hole. You don't want to go down. Yeah, you do Inevitably, don't. You only read the bad ones. But anyway, yeah. so, but I went, um she said that I got something wrong about Beloved, Toni Morrison's book that I said about Beloved, that I got the, the. You know, the age of um, Setha's daughter. I was like, just- Devastated by that, I have a PhD in English. Like that's the one thing I get wrong, you know. She said, "I, wh- I why didn't the fact checker catch this?" And I thought, I don't know, oh, "Why the fact should Well, because it. the fact
0: checkers were focusing on all the research and everything else, citations, right? Well, you but know I, what? It's I do remember when I you made that reference to to Beloved, and I was like, hmm, I don't really remember it that way, but I, it's been such a long time since I read Beloved, and well, it was sort of like, I was like, I want to
1: go back and see. But, I thought it was. Uh, her, Seth's eldest daughter. Anyway, we'll, we'll, I'll I'll fix it in the paperback. I promise. Oh yeah, But
0: the thing that I think is important to underscore there is that we, it doesn't matter how well we know things. We make a lot of mistakes.
1: A hundred percent. And if that's the only mistake I made, I'm fine with that. That was like, that's really, it's a huge compliment now that I think about it, but, but I wanted to weave in I mean, I kind of wanted my narrative to trick the reader into taking in all this information that they need to know about mental health diagnoses without really realizing that they're taking it in. So that the, the, you know, the narrative it's a, you know, and people have said this, which is just such a huge compliment to me. I'm, I love thrillers. So, but people have said, it's just a page turner and they just read it really fast and they read it in a day or two. And that's just such high praise to me. So, and that's what I wanted was just the narrative to engross people. And then they get all this information. They don't even, you know, it's very hardcore research, but they don't have to feel like it's dry. And so that was how research was for me. That's how I wanted to do it.
0: Yeah, I think, well, to me, that is first-person journalism. And that yeah. one of the benefits of it is what you're talking about, is a reader engagement. Yeah. That kind of, you can structure it so you're moving through a very propulsive narrative and then take a little bit of a breather and bring yes. in some information at, right at the point where a reader needs a little bit of a breather. Yes. Then you bring, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, very good technique for for bringing in a lot of information about the world, things that we need to know,
1: I think. Yeah. And pacing. I mean, it's such a great pacing device yeah, it is. and it's just not Definitely. used enough. I mean, I almost I kind of can't believe it's not done more often because it is. Uh, well,
0: it's, yeah. I think everybody that writes this way knows that, right? right? It's kind of like, you know, and I teach this stuff So it is always interesting to talk to people about, you know, when you start talking about, you know, braided narratives, you know, storyline, a storyline, whatever, however you want to frame it. Mm -hmm. I oftentimes will say one way to think about it when we're talking about journalism and its first person, you have a personal story is that, you know, you have five or six scenes and you weave this, you know, you intersperse your personal story with this. And that is a it's a pacing. And I've talked about it that way, too. Um, one of the reasons why I think perhaps it does engage readers—it's one of the like few kind of positive things you see out there right now in the journalism horizon—is yeah. is much more not only personal writing, but sort of uh, sort of um, assessment of your own point of view as an observer and yeah. how you did the reporting and all this. You know, it just that—it's just to me that makes it more credible. All right, I think we should probably wind this up. But I I have one more question and then I want to maybe read that thing about from the punctuation. So for me, um, one powerful takeaway from your book is, um, and then I see it as being connected to personal nonfiction writing and first person journalism. And it's the value of getting at the truth of who you are, Mm -hmm. even if you stumble along the way or everybody stumbles. Right. So, you know, you're always you're stumbling right? So that's part of the journey, right? So what advice do you have for writers who want to convey their
1: own experience of mental illness or other trauma? It's hard to say. It's hard to give that advice. I mean, I think the main thing that I've always tried to do is I love the equivalent of breaking the fourth wall in the sense of admitting what you don't know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a Michelle de Montaigne thing and kind of the core of the Mm -hmm. essay, but I think it can really find its way more into the memoir. We tend to be more authoritative about our experience in a memoir. And I think all these things that I don't remember and that I didn't, you know, not being able to get at something can be as powerful as being able to get at it. If that makes sense. So I think leaning into that and really trying to, explore what you don't know. And I mean, to say, I don't have the answers in a mental illness memoir is like foreboding, (laughs) you know, you're supposed to come back with a, you know, some sort of answer. And, and so that was kind of a big leap and it was a big leap for my agent and for my editor, you know, to, to be willing to kind of put out that ambiguity, but that ambiguity is so important.
0: I do think that one of one of the more problematic aspects of sort of traditional memoir writing is what I would call fictionalizing the self or the story because yeah. it's to make it sound more authoritative or like it it follows some kind of narrative strict narrative chronology you know that you might find in fiction um, when in fact real life is kind of messy and the way you mm. come to realizations about what's going on in your life and your, whatever the, the sort of main event that you're working through in a memoir is. Okay, uh, this is in your, uh, I, I actually, you have two different, um, you have two different short chapters at the end. And I, I also like the other one that was on stigma and, and disclosure where you're talking about parentheses, I think, but I'll just, I'll just read the thing about brackets. Brackets are a broken square. They emit a feeling of enclosure. Which is how I see myself during those years, walled off, the self alone, with the self, inside the self. Brackets, like human beings, are relational. At times, they signal unnecessary information, at others, they draw attention to what's inside. Recently, someone reminded me that they hold space for words that may or may not yet exist. They communicate to the reader when someone's words have been altered. In quotations, they show when only part of a sentence is being quoted, but presented as a standalone clause. I won't read the example. Uh, It can tell us when someone else's words have been manipulated, a boundary has been inserted to connect two voices, perhaps causing the meaning to change. Brackets clarify the context. They nest information. They point out a typo or an error in the original text. Not my error, someone else's. Mm -hmm. I just love that, Sarah. Thank you so much for talking to me today.
1: Thank you so much for doing this.
0: You've been listening to the Talking Writing Podcast, a production of Talking Writing Incorporated, a nonprofit organization based in the Boston area. We rely on our readers and listeners to tell us what they're interested in. So please send us your comments and suggestions to editor at talkingwriting.com. Thanks for listening.